Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the third time's not a charm. The Ohio Redistricting Commission missed last week's deadline to redraw state legislative maps yet again, which could now throw the May primary into doubt. We'll speak with State Representative John Cross. Also this morning, the pandemic exposed some weaknesses in the healthcare system and led to innovative solutions for others, but it definitely demonstrated that more reform is needed. The question is, what type of reform? And as Black History Month draws to a close, how do we teach younger generations about race in America? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, February 21st, 2022. It is President's Day today, so there are some folks uh, have the uh, day off. Uh, others be working through the holiday. It's one of those quasi-holidays that uh, some of us work and some of us don't. <laughs> we are. President's Day today. It is Card Reading Day today. It is National Grain-Free Day. And maybe even more important than President's Day, it is National Sticky Bun Day. <laughs> so there is that. Important stuff. So the final medal count uh, for the uh, Olympics. One country enjoyed a clear advantage in the uh, in the final medal count. I thought this was kind of interesting, too, because normally the host country gets a big bump in the in the medal uh, count. And there were a number of athletes, most notably from the United States, who were competing for China this year including Eileen Gu, who did uh, extremely well in her events. But it wasn't enough to propel China into the top five. Normally, the host country gets a big boost uh, for you know, being the athletes being close to home, but it didn't work out that way. Norway broke the record for most gold medals at a single Olympic Winter Games. And uh, Ilana Myers-Taylor... Ilana Myers earned her fifth Olympic medal, making her the most decorated African-American Winter Olympian ever. So those were two of the record-setting notes from the final medal count. Uh, there were 109 gold medals in total handed out, up from 102 in Pyeongchang four years ago. Do you believe at the original Winter Olympics in 1924, there were 16 gold medal Events or 16 gold medals handed out. 16. They're up to 109. Over 300 medals awarded in all to Olympians participating in 15 sports and 109 events at the Beijing Games. And Norway, number one, 16 gold, 8 silver, 13 bronze for a total of 37 medals in all. The uh, Russian Olympic Committee... Not Russia, because Russia's not allowed to participate, but the Russian Olympic Committee, the ROC, took home 6 gold, 12 silver, and 14 bronze, 32 medals overall for second place. Germany in third place with 27 medals in all, including 12 gold, 10 silver, and 5 bronze. Uh, Canada was fourth in the overall medal count with 26, 4 gold, 8 silver, 14 bronze, and the United States came in fifth overall, 25 medals, 8 gold, 10 silver, 7 bronze. So that's the final medal count from the Olympics uh, as the closing ceremonies were held 
yesterday. Some of the other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Tomorrow is a big day. Did you, did you know this? Tomorrow is a big day. February of 2022, actually full of special dates. Uh, February 2nd was one because it was 2-2-22. Tomorrow, excuse me, tomorrow is February 22nd, so it's 2-22-22. So, in numerology, the number two is associated with heightened intuition and sensitivity, as well as the strength and power that comes from connection and collaboration. And 22 is considered to be even more significant than just the single-digit two, as it is considered to be a master number in numerology. And so this special date has not one, but two 22s in it. So you've got two 22s in two 22-22. So, <laughs> folks who are into numerology will be using tomorrow as a time to write down some intentions or simply using the day to embark on some sort of positive new journey. So that's what they what they say you should be doing tomorrow i mention it because you know it's tomorrow so start thinking about that what what uh what positive new journey do you want to embark on tomorrow you might want to start thinking about that so uh let's see it turns out that beauty is more than skin deep how about this texas christian university researchers have found that traits that are traditional, traditionally linked to attractiveness uh, may be signs that the body is better at fighting off infections. So in other words, they're saying that beautiful, beautiful people are healthier. <laughs> uh, it's traits like a symmetrical face, bright eyes. They say... The scientists found that people rated most attractive by other participants also had higher rates of phagocytosis, which is the process by which uh, white blood cells destroy bacteria before it can make someone ill. Uh, It has long been suggested that good-looking people are healthier because, and it's not because beautiful people are naturally healthier. It's not a side effect of being beautiful per se, but the things we associate with beauty, like we mentioned, a symmetrical face. For example, uh, if you have a symmetrical face, you are less likely to have had developmental problems in the womb um, or during childhood. Uh, bright eyes are usually a sign that there's nothing that's uh, that's clouding your eyes. You know, cloudy eyes or, or eyes that are dull or are sometimes an indication of some sort of illness. And so the absence of that makes you look healthier, makes you appear more beautiful to others. So it's not that beautiful people don't get sick as often. It's that those who don't get sick appear more beautiful. I know that's a bit of a distinction without a difference, perhaps, but you understand what I'm saying here. Um, The leader of the study at TCU says, with modern medicine, infections are not as deadly as they used used to be, so perhaps it's okay if people lower their standards and start to give people who are less attractive a shot. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but it, it appears that beauty is more than skin deep, after all. By the way, speaking of beauty, this was kind of interesting. 
Research out of the University of Arizona. If you are on a dating app, you might want to carefully consider what you use for a profile photo. What they found is that people who post sexy photos on their dating profiles are actually less likely to get to be seriously considered uh, by uh, by people on the uh, dating platform. Less likely. Instead, those with sexy photos are often seen as incompetent, unlikable, and less likely to be looking for a long-term relationship. Now, I know that's not really fair. I mean, we talk about the inherent unfairness of uh, physical attractiveness, you know, deciding whether you like someone based on a profile picture. And we usually think about it in the other, uh, in the other sense, that people are only interested in those who have you know, sexy model-like, uh, sexy model-like appearance. But no, it turns out it's the other way around. Overall, male profiles with sexy photos were judged more harshly than female profiles with sexy photos, which, again, might be a bit of a surprise. According to the researchers, results found that sexualized dating profiles incurred social costs. In other words, they were less perceived as competent, less likable, and uh, less socially attractive. They might be physically attractive, but not socially attractive. And they were also at an increased likelihood of experiencing sexual cyber dating abuse than their non-sexualized counterparts. So be careful what profile picture you choose. Your dating profile. I thought that was kind of interesting. And how about this among the first things you need to know this morning? The most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Employers, if you want to encourage creativity in your workers, you should nurture friendships between co-workers. You should encourage them to fraternize. Maybe not necessarily at work, but outside of work hours. How many people do you work with that you are friends with you would invite over for you know for dinner on the weekend researchers the university of bath uh that's in england right yeah found that uh care from a co-worker inspires people to be supportive to their partner at home showing that co-workers have a significant role to play in enabling couples to cope with balancing the demands of work and family life so it's not so much encouraging friendships among coworkers that encourage coworkers to get together, or get along together. It's that encouraging bonds among coworkers increases an employee's satisfaction with their home life, which in turn has a positive impact on their productivity and so on. Really, kind of interesting the way all of this works together. The uh, they say it also has benefits for creative thinking at work. Uh, They say we're not suggesting that employers should meddle in relationships. They may be able to positively contribute to the quality of relationships at home by putting policies and procedures in place to minimize work-family conflict, such as limiting overtime and expectations uh, to respond to emails outside of working hours. Still, the researchers acknowledge that there could be drawbacks in relying on coworkers for support with work and family matters with partners at home feeling jealous and upset about the closeness of work-spouse relationships, they suggest future research may look into that potential conflict. So, more perhaps to be learned, but interesting stuff nonetheless. 
There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to think about as we get your Monday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, partly to mostly sunny skies today with a high of 55, becoming cloudy tonight, low 49. The Finley Police Department says a familiar scam is popping up again. The police department says they've taken several calls from residents reporting that someone claiming to be with the police department is contacting them. The would-be scammer tells the resident that they've missed jury duty and has a warrant and then begins to probe for personal information, followed by instructions on how to obtain gift cards to pay the fines. The police department reminds everyone that this is a common phone scam and that law enforcement agencies will not contact you by phone to make payments. Get more on the scam on the website. Ohio's Republican U.S. Senator Rob Portman says the inflation that's currently happening is because too much stimulus money was handed out during the pandemic. Senator Portman says he saw this coming and warned about it last year. There's a very simple solution. Stop spending so much on stimulus because the more demand spending you put into the economy, given the supply constraints, the higher the inflation is going to be. Portman says the Build Back Better plan from the Democrats would exacerbate the problem. Dave James, I went in news. After two years of being affected by COVID restrictions, the Ohio State Fair will be back at full capacity this summer. Fair organizers announced that this year's fair will run July 27th to August 7th at the Ohio Expo Center at full capacity. Fair officials said the first big-name acts of this year's concert and event series will be announced March 7th, with additional announcements to be made March 21st and April 4th. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. The Hancock County Fair in Findlay will be held Labor Day weekend as usual. And the Putnam County Fair is one of the earliest fairs that will be held in June in Ottawa. You can check out the full fair schedule on the website. The University of Findlay's Mazza Museum has a new exhibit on display in conjunction with Black History Month. The exhibit titled Game Changers can be seen at the Freed Galleria through spring semester. So you can pick up the book below and open it to the marked page and see the original hanging above it. That's Museum Director Ben Sapp. Get more on the new exhibit on the website. And get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Well, now our cover story this morning. You know the old saying, third time's a charm. Well, that is not the case for the Ohio Redistricting Commission, which last week missed a deadline imposed by the state Supreme Court to redraw the legislative maps yet again. And now there are fears that this could throw the May primary into doubt. We are joined this morning by uh, State Representative John Cross. And you are among those who uh, obviously are directly impacted by this, not knowing, you know, with all of this in limbo, not knowing who exactly you are potentially going to be representing moving forward where you need to campaign for re-election. How frustrating is this to not have those basic answers? Morning, Chris. Uh, it, it's very frustrating, and uh, I feel really bad, actually, for the constituents and the voters. Uh, people in Ohio deserve to know who is representing them, and in general, uh, redistricting happens every Ten years with the with uh, the census, and given that they voted for maps a couple times on a four year plan, mm-hmm. 
you know, you, you really hope that you want a 10-year map because voters need to know who their legislators are. And, I, and my fear is that we're going to be in a position where yeah. people are just not going to get to know who's representing them. Now, to be clear, this does not affect current representation. And you uh, represent uh, Hancock County up until the point mm-hmm. where we go through the election and uh, new legislation, uh, new legislature uh, is seated uh, so nothing has changed in the immediate. We're talking about that's right. You know the, that's right. the future, future and future. campaigning. That's and, right. And so that's on. right. I, I, I'm proud to represent the 83rd district now, uh, and that will. Uh, we're in the uh, 134th General Assembly. They're two year every two years. So we're we're kind of in season two of the 134th General Assembly. We will finish this year. And basically, voters what the voters would be voting for is for legislators to take their seats in the 135th General Assembly starting January 1st of 2023. Right. So uh, we've we've got uh, plenty of time left on the calendar year to continue to legislate for our district. Um, but I, I'm honestly kind of lost for words, uh, which is unusual for me because we're, <laughs> we're, we're in a constitutional crisis. Uh, the Supreme Court is ruling one way. The legislature controls the date, time, and location of elections, and we are in the middle of the election cycle. And I'm a little frustrated with the courts. I think the redistricting commission obviously has a challenge challenge to – you can only – change the maps so many ways and uh i'm a little frustrated with the supreme court and their delays and their actions and we're in the middle of an election the filing date has come and gone right um so and we still have to and we haven't even touched the congressional maps yet so right. it's and I, and I I'm really not interested in moving the primary election because I don't want to cost voters uh, or cost the constituents another ten to fifteen million dollars to hold separate elections. Uh, so it's we're in a challenging spot. And, and I, I we've talked about this uh, in the past as this process has gone through, and I certainly I, I get the arguments on both sides uh, about you know the. Uh, underlying motivation for drawing uh, the, uh, the the maps as they've been drawn and the arguments about the uh, legal challenges uh, to those maps. I get it. I get the feeling, however, that if it were Democrats in control of the legislature and thus holding a more prominent place on the redistricting commission, that we would be hearing the same arguments coming from opposite sides. And I wonder, yeah. isn't, isn't that exactly what the redistricting commission was supposed to avoid? It is. I, and, and that's why, I, 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 yes. And, and that's why I'm a little frustrated with the court, because I think the general arguments of whether we have enough blue or red seats mm. is, is really not the argument now. It's the Supreme Court, in my personal opinion, I believe that they become political activists and that they want to draw the lines. And, and, and is any map good enough for them? I mean, if we come to a decision where we have approval from both sides of the aisle, is the court still going to accept that? And, and I really believe my frustration is the Supreme Court of Ohio has become, and, and, and the four justices have become political activists. Uh, and, and, you know, do they, do they want to draw the lines 
themselves, uh, which they could do. Uh, and, and I have some concerns with that. So that's probably where my, my frustration lies right now mm-hmm. is, yes, we can have great banter uh, back and forth on, on uh, Democrats and Republicans trying to draw a map. But at some point, the court really needs to accept a map and we got to move forward. Yeah. Uh, Ohio is not the only uh, state that's been struggling with this. And again, something that we've been talking about on the uh, program, the other states uh, are, are, are struggling much the same way. Uh, and they have different, uh, you know, different states have different uh, processes. Mm-hmm. Is is it possible that, that this gets looked at again, perhaps yet another initiative to to change the process of how this is done again? Yeah, it, certainly it, 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 it can. I think people are questioning the constitutional amendment that voters passed last time around. And did people really understand what they were voting on and, and has it made it even more complicated? Yeah. Uh, because it's it's extremely complicated to try to draw maps uh, uh, and 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 make this work. Uh, it's like the where I'm dating myself, but it's like a game of Tetris, right? You gotta mm-hmm. you gotta fit everything and make it work. So um, I think the process is going. I mean, that's one argument we've actually made is, hey, why don't we why don't we keep this going and and change it for the next election cycle? Uh, keep working this map issue, but let's take the maps that we had uh, and let's move forward with the election, and we will continue to have this conversation. Because don't forget, the, the, the census was delayed, and mm-hmm. everything got delayed because of uh, the situation we're in. So traditionally, this probably would have been resolved by now, mm-hmm. but because the census data was delayed, and, and that's what drives the conversation it's, of how many people we represent. Right. See, I represent of, 120,000 people, and that's the number they're using as the baseline to create districts. And so that's kind of created a snowball. As you mentioned, you have no interest mm-hmm. in uh, moving the May primary because that is now uh, the narrative uh, in the reporting on this is that uh, we're only a couple of weeks away from when the first ballots have to be mailed out from uh, two military members. So this, sure. you know, this is really getting to be crunch time. Is there any appetite among any of your uh, colleagues in the state legislature to move the May primary or take a look at that? I'm not hearing any appetite at all to move it. Now, if you had to move it, I don't, I'm not hearing any appetite at all to have Two, there's conversations about having two primaries, hmm. one for local uh, local officials and statewide candidates in May, and then you would have a second primary uh, for general assembly and congressional seats. The, the, the challenge with all this is I worry about fraud. I worry about voter fraud uh, and issues, uh, uh, logistics issues, supply chain issues. There's a number of things I worry about. So what, what might make sense is if you did have to move it, you move the entire primary election, all mm-hmm. candidates, maybe to June versus May. Yeah. But, uh, and, and hopefully limit the cost. But again, I'm just not hearing that appetite in Columbus in doing so. So there's a lawsuit filed uh, uh, with the federal courts. We'll see what happens next. Wouldn't be surprised if this goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, but again, that takes time, and time is what we don't have. Yeah. Uh, what do want to ask, before we let you go, I want to ask a, a, a 
different topic related, but a, a, a separate topic. The Ohio Republican Party uh, last week endorsed uh, Mike DeWine for re-election. It was a move that did not sit well with some in the party. And you obviously have uh, taken some well-documented, have, have had some well-documented issues with the way the governor has handled uh, the pandemic in particular. What is your take on the uh, party's endorsement? Well, you know, uh, uh, party parties traditionally make endorsements for incumbents like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that that didn't happen. But again, primary elections, whenever we have them, uh, that's when voters can decide who they want to uh, have represent. So certainly, you know, the voters will make the final decision. Um, endorsements. Uh, I w- I've always learned endorsements uh, sometimes matter, sometimes don't, and it's really the candidate going out there working hard, earning the respect of the of the voters and the constituency. So, you know, having a, a state Republican Party endorse reelection for your statewide candidates that's not surprising, not shocking, and it's been traditionally that way. We'll leave it there. Again, uh, State Representative John Cross with us uh, this morning. Ms. Cross, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. As you probably already know, February Black History Month, and uh, the folks at Black Heritage Library and Multicultural Center have had an ongoing uh, discussion on a number of issues uh, facing the African-American community today, and really the community at large. Uh, Jerome Gray is with us from the uh, Black Heritage Library and Multicultural Center. This has been a uh, series of uh, online uh, forums that you've been doing through the uh, month of May. Yes. Or uh, month of February, rather. Yes. Month of May. I'm, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm ready for spring, so I'm getting. <laughs> I hear you. You know, Chris, there's a, a plethora of books out there on the black experience in America and education. And in reading those books, we came at it on an individual basis mm-hmm. to draw upon the books that we've read in order to try to help the Finley community continue on its goal of becoming a more open and welcoming community Mm -hmm. and you've been talking about a really fascinating collection of topics everything from uh policing and uh the inherent injustices in the uh, criminal justice system really fascinating uh topic on the migration of the african-american uh populace from the south into northern uh cities uh, big cities and Mm -hmm. smaller communities and so on really fascinating in in terms of the history uh uh, of that, this next one that you have coming up tomorrow is one of the real hot button issues uh, that has uh, become front and center these days, and that is the question of race and education uh, in yes. America. You know, you hear the term out there, critical race theory. Right. All critical race theory is is a way of explaining disadvantage or racial inequities Mm -hmm. that do exist and education is one of them based on how we fund our schools that poor inner city schools through property tax 
aren't funded at a level that's necessary mm -hmm. to provide the environment for the students to learn. And and that's been a topic of discussion in the state of Ohio for yes. decades. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you mentioned critical race theory. Also want to bring into the conversation uh, Reverend Becky uh, Schofield Motter uh, and uh, Dr. Auburn Schaefer, uh, who will be a part of the uh, this uh, discussion uh, as well. And I think you've been uh, in on some of the other ones uh, as well through the course of the month. You know, we talk about critical race theory and there's been an, a, a lot of debate over that and even how you define it, which is kind of an interesting uh, sidebar discussion. But it, does that become a distraction? Because this is something that in its original form is not being taught in primary and secondary. It's only post-secondary education where you really get into that. Hi. Uh, so this is Dr. Dr. S. Um, I, I'm over here giving uh, Jerome the eye because <laughs> I go out of my way to not use those three words, critical race theory. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I've been teaching, to, uh, I've, I've been an English teacher uh, as, as part of my life. And mm -hmm. I, I, I taught Toni Morrison for years. I taught James Baldwin for years. These were black Americans with a literary perspective that was just absolutely life-changing for me. And I encountered that literature in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, critical race theory has been terribly, terribly misunderstood, and I try not to use the words. Yeah. Because there's so much about it that we already um, engage in. Um, so when we talk about education... And, and my, my, uh, my work has been in education. And specifically, we all tend to think of Brown versus Board as that wonderful moment where we desegregated the schools. Mm -hmm. um, and that was it. We desegregated <laughs> the schools and we, you know. Okay, we fixed this now. Yeah, it's a new day in America. Yeah. And I have African-American friends in Cleveland who were young in the 50s, and they're like, oh, my gosh, we really are. They, they were in black schools in the South mm -hmm. being prepared by their black teachers to integrate. Mm -hmm. And their black teachers going, yo, this is about to happen. We need to show up and be ready for this wonderful opportunity. Mm -hmm. But part of the fallout of that was literally, literally, overnight after Brown versus Board, I believe it was, I might have the number wrong, I believe it was 60,000 black educators lost their jobs overnight. Mm. So now, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and there were the part black... Part of the story that you yes! just really and hear so about. There, yeah. and, there, and there were black educators who, who, who maintained their position, but they ended up, say, in white schools or integrated schools. And I studied one black educator who, back after Brown versus Board, she was desperate to get to her black kids. She had white kids, and she said, oh, my gosh, my black kids are coming into this. Mm -hmm. They're going to they're, they're gonna be harmed by their teachers, and I need to get to them and help them and support them. So fast forward to 2020. Yes. Uh, is, it, is it substantially different now? No, it's worse in terms of the experience of a black kid in a classroom. Why is that? If I'm in the and, and I and I'm making the comparison to being in the South, where you're being loved by your aunties, your church people, 
your mother, it's your older sister who's teaching. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you're using second, third hand throwaway books from the white school and you're in a crappy building, but you are being cared for rather than rather than. Oh God, it's a black kid. Yeah. I'm scared of that kid. How much of that goes to race and just the condition of the educational system itself? Well, that's a loaded question. Uh, that would take me and, a month to And answer. by extension, you know, <laughs> break, breakdown in the family and breakdowns in society and, and so on. Uh, again, uh, Pastor Becky, maybe you can kind of speak to that uh, with respect to you know, the way society has changed. Sure, we've, we've, I think we think that there are so many people that have gotten beyond the race issue. People mm -hmm. talk about being colorblind, but if you talk to people of color, what they say is, I want you to see my color. I want you to acknowledge that I have differences. I want you to recognize me for who I am and who I was created to be, mm -hmm. rather than to say, you don't see those differences. Mm -hmm. And so I think in our society, we have to appreciate the multicultural nature of who we find ourselves with in community. That you bring up the that term colorblind, and I think you know back again the early days of the civil rights movement. I mean the the whole idea was we were going to create a colorblind society. Jerome, is that is that even possible, or is that even what we want to do? That wasn't what Dr. King was speaking of when he used that quote, and a mm -hmm. lot of people are using that quote against what he was actually speaking of. I experienced what Dr. S was talking about. I was born in Alabama in 1955. I grew up under separate but equal through yeah. the third grade. Yeah. All black teachers, all black school on the, on the west side of Alabama, and I had a good education. When I moved to Ohio in 63 in the third grade, I started going to school with white kids in an integrated environment and I just moved and excelled on to where I am today. My uncles in Alabama, to show you brown, they're a year older than myself. Both of them deceased, unfortunately. They did not start going to school with white kids until 1971. Hmm. Wow. That's with all deliberate slow speed that yeah. brown was implemented. Yeah. Um, we could go on and on, and unfortunately, we're short on time. Uh, this is going to be part of the uh, forum. We're going to be talking about all of this tomorrow, tomorrow right? Tomorrow night, Tuesday night on Zoom, and it'll be at it'll start at seven p.m. And to get the link, you can go to our Facebook page, Black Heritage Library Multicultural Center, mm -hmm. and you'll be able to get that link. I yeah. want to end on one thing: coming back to critical race theory. Gloria Lansom Billingsley said, our issue in America is not about critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Our issue is about our inability to confront race and racism as a system that works against all of us. Mm. A lot there to uh, think about. This is going to be a really fascinating discussion, and the previous discussions are up there uh, archived as well. Yes. So if you want to catch up on uh, some of those for uh, Black uh, History Month in the uh, month of February. Again, Jerome Gray, the Black Heritage Library and Multicultural Center, along with uh, Reverend Becky uh, Schofield-Motter and Dr. Auburn Schaefer with us uh, this morning. Thank you all for uh, dropping by. Thank we appreciate you, it. Really important information. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. This is a story that any parent 
can relate to. Because, you know, kids uh, never want to put down their devices. They're constantly on their screens. And it's frustrating for parents because we know that they need time away from the screen. So getting them to put down their devices uh, can be a a, a battle for for parents. Um, This father in France took took it to the extreme. (laughs) Apparently, this unnamed dad, uh, it's a true story uh, in, in media reports uh, out, of, uh, out of France, but they did not name the, the dad probably best because I'm sure he'd want to remain anonymous after this. He used a multi-wave signal jammer to temporarily cut off the internet connection at his home. <laughs> now, these are illegal. They're illegal in this country. They're illegal all over the world. These signal jammers to they interfere with Wi-Fi and and cell phone uh, signals, right? So, <laughs> so you can turn off your Wi-Fi, but you can't really turn off the cell phone signals. So he installed this signal jammer to cut off the internet connection at his home to get his kids to stop using their devices. <laughs> However, what he didn't know was that the device that he was using, the signal jammer he was using was powerful enough to cut off connectivity to the entire town. (laughs) So uh, his neighbors uh, started complaining uh, to their providers. (laughs) There were outages in the area. The uh, cell phone providers were like, well, you don't have any uh, problem. There's got to be something going on. They launched an investigation and the uh, government of France uh, intervened. Uh, this dad now faces six months in jail and a 30,000 euro fine for <laughs> just trying to get his, his kids to put down their phones and ended up jamming the signal for the entire town. Again, I think every parent can relate. <laughs> Oops. Elsewhere in today's broken news, back on this side of the pond, a couple from Wisconsin with a love of true crime, true crime podcasts, recently stumbled onto a mystery of their own. When they, <laughs> and this is the thing: have you ever uh, been so wrapped up in in something that you see on on television or hear on the radio or something or see on social media, you get so wrapped up in this that you start seeing things that aren't there? Well, this is the uh, case. Uh, Deborah Lieber and her husband William said they discovered what they thought were human remains in their vehicle. They arrived home earlier this month looking visibly rattled, explaining that they had pulled a clump of hair out of the tailpipe of their Ford Expedition. They pulled a clump of, what is it, a clump of hair coming out of the tailpipe. They went to further investigate and pulled more of the stuff out of the exhaust pipe. They then called police, thinking something's when they had just bought the vehicle, something is amiss here. Even the cops were confused. But soon, Deborah's brother-in-law solved the mystery. Uh, he's a an auto mechanic, and he uh, informed them that it was not human hair at all. It was caused by a broken silencer in the exhaust, which sheds insulation material when it's about to break down. <laughs> wasn't a dead body at all. There wasn't human remains in their new vehicle. (laughs) Just a broken part in some insulation. (laughs) Had the cops 
cops stumped stumped as well. So don't feel too bad about that. <laughs> it's embarrassing to make that mistake. Uh, Got to have so, something out of Florida here. And uh, this is a real big oops. Authorities in Florida are investigating after a toddler was locked in a daycare after workers left for the day. Stephanie Martinez discovered that her two-year-old daughter was alone in the dark when she arrived at a kinder care learning center location north of Miami last week. She had to call the fire department who pried the doors of the facility open to rescue the two-year-old. The kid is fine. Uh, she was unharmed, but uh, Ms. Martinez reported that her daughter was super traumatized by the incident, as you might imagine. Uh, police later found that the worker responsible for checking children out of the facility left shortly before Ms. Martinez arrived and locked the doors. Um, a, a spokesperson for the company says that all workers involved in the incident were placed on administrative leave while the investigation continues. <laughs> Thought all the kids had been picked up? Apparently not. <clears throat> and finally, in the broken news this morning, imagine leaving flowers on the grave of a loved one only to be hit with an arrest warrant on a littering charge. Believe it or not, that's what happened to Winchester Higgins of uh, Alabama. He uh, left a planter box on the grave of his uh, deceased fiance Hannah, who he lost in a car crash back in January. Um, the local news uh, local news reports are that to make matters matters a little more confusing, it turns out the arrest warrant was signed by the woman's father. Uh, Mr. Higgins had uh, built a flower box filled with her favorite flowers and decorated it with pictures of the two of them to put by her grave. He even asked the city if it was okay to do that and got permission. Uh, the uh, city employees, he said, told, told him they don't enforce littering charges unless a family member asked for the whatever was left of the gravesite to be removed. And apparently that's what happened. Her father asked uh, that it be removed and he was arrested for littering after putting the box of flowers on her grave. Uh, Hannah's father declined comment uh, about the incident. So I don't know. I think there's something more to that story. Can you imagine leaving flowers uh, at the grave of a loved one and then being arrested for littering as a result. I just, uh, that just blows my mind. Uh, there you go. That is today's broken news report. This uh, update on the odd and unusual side of the news. It is certainly that this morning. Brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Take WFIN wherever you go with our updated mobile app for iPhone and Android. And now you can listen to us on your Alexa device. Get the app at WFIN.com or in the App Store or Google Play. Plus, enable Alexa by searching for WFIN under Skills and you'll soon be saying, Alexa, play 1330 WFIN. And the best part is the apps and skills are absolutely free. On the air at 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Online at WFIN.com and on your smartphone, tablet, and Alexa devices. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. What is the first thing that, that people ask when you go back to work on a, on a Monday morning? Or, you know, maybe you have uh, an extended weekend with the President's Day holiday uh, today. Maybe you won't be going back to work until tomorrow. But what's the first thing that your coworkers always ask when you get back to the office? 
So, what'd you do this weekend? If the answer is nothing, well, that might be the best weekend of all. Recent study of 2,000 American adults over the age of 21 finds that staying in is the new going out. Three in four of respondents in the survey agree that there is nothing better than having no plans at all for the weekend. 71% also look forward to plans being canceled so that they can stay in. While the large majority of Americans, 69%, prefer to stay home on weeknights, 38% say they continue to be homebodies on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, The survey finds that two in five respondents say that their homebody transition started in their 30s. Uh, That's when it really became kind of the thing to stay in for the weekend. Eight in 10 Americans agree that they actually prefer to have a night in with friends these days rather than go out on the town. And so what is the perfect night uh, of staying in on the weekend? Um, Well, binge watching TV, 53% and binge watching TV. Hunkering down with a book from start to finish, 32%. 30% said just going for a walk at some point. It would be the perfect weekend plan. Uh, and uh, naturally, the other thing that uh, people said was really important on the weekend, catching up on some shut-eye, being able to sleep in, <laughs> 35% said that that was uh, what they look forward to the most uh, on the weekend. I thought that was really fascinating. Three in four, uh, 75% of uh, those in the survey said that there is nothing better than having no plans at all for the weekend, which there are times when I would agree with that, but then there are also times when I, I go to turn in on Sunday night and I look back and say, man, I wasted an entire weekend. I got absolutely nothing done. Didn't do anything. And, you know, sometimes on Friday, you look forward to that. But then on Sunday, I find myself maybe regretting it a little bit. No, kind of interesting. Well, healthcare reform has been a hot button issue in this country since long before the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare ever came about. Remember, Bill Clinton proposed a national single-payer health care plan 30 years ago when he was president in the 90s. Even in the 1960s, Medicare and Medicaid were strongly opposed by many when they were rolled out. And now the coronavirus pandemic has exposed some weaknesses in the healthcare system and led to innovative solutions for others, but it makes clear that there is still more work to be done. Dr. Diana Gernita recently wrote an op-ed for Real Clear Health about this ongoing debate. She is a practicing rheumatologist. Uh, Dr. Gernita, that really is the bottom line, right? That, that more reform is needed. It's not a question of whether there is more work to be done. The question is what type of reform. Yes, I think there are many solutions to be to be addressed or many problems to be addressed with many solutions. It's not going to be only one solution for for everybody because you know patient challenges are different and uh, physician challenges are different. But if we can unite uh, the efforts to do something for uh, for everybody, it's going to be very hard. But addressing the needs of people will be something that we have to look into. We referenced the, excuse me, 
We referenced the op-ed that you wrote uh, recently for Real Clear Health. The title of the piece, and I don't know if you wrote the headline, but the title of the piece is Doctors Are at a Breaking Point. And certainly that has been an ongoing storyline the past couple of years. But you actually argued this was already the case, perhaps made worse, perhaps exacerbated by the pandemic. But this has been coming on for quite some time. Uh, yes, the the doctors are to a breaking point. Many doctors um, after the pandemic or during the pandemic, they they left medicine forever uh, because of the things that they were experiencing in in the current healthcare system. And um, we do experience a, a huge shortage of physicians in the United States and all over the world. And this pandemic showed us that uh, you know doctors were not appreciated to their uh, full value value and uh, they were working too hard and they they did not have the support that they needed um, during these very difficult times and uh, I can tell you many of them they they just wanted to do their job they didn't want to be involved in other activities that then just take care of the patients. You cite some specific examples of where there are pressure points or pinch points in the system that could be relieved. What are some of those examples that that you see or some of those reforms that you see as the most critical? Um, You know, one of the things that I cite uh, in the article is the health health savings account um, and as you probably know, and many people know, they are like a, a 401k for healthcare. But right. unfortunately, not everybody can benefit from uh, from this kind of advantage to put the money pre-tax in this account and spend the money the way that they need to spend for medical expenses. Um, there are a lot of limitations for these um, HSA accounts. And uh not only that, only certain people, uh, actually about 10% of people, 10% of Americans with high deductibles, they are eligible for this kind of accounts. But even those money, they can be spent, uh, you know, in certain types of medical expenses. Not They are not uh, for every medical expense. And I'm going to give you an example um, because I cited this movement here about direct primary care. Direct primary care is a movement that started about 10 years ago when doctors that were, um, um, they were family doctors or internists, Mm -hmm. they started their own practices and um, they contracted directly with patients. So for a small fee, like a a membership that you pay to your gym, uh, you can get access uh, to their offices whenever you need it. But um, unfortunately, these HSA accounts are not allowing the patients to pay this small membership fee. And uh, and I'm talking about, you know, $100, $150 or $200 or, you know, the maximum of $300 for for Hmm. any services that you need in in primary care physician Hmm. office. So that's that's something that um, uh, I cite here. Um, There are also uh, states that do not allow um, direct primary care to exist in their states or they make it difficult. I would say they make it difficult um, because they see these memberships as as a type of insurance, which is not. It's just an access to care. It's not an insurance. 
you know, a direct uh, primary care or um, office cannot uh, take care of all the emergencies of the patient, but they can take care of the needs of the patient in many aspects. Mm-hmm. So that those are things that um, that I I mentioned in the article, and and some of what you're talking about are should be fairly easy reforms to to do to implement. Others are much uh, bigger, bolder ideas that might uh, take a little bit more doing. So I guess. Are, are you advocating that we reignite the whole repeal and replace effort of the Affordable Care Act? I mean, the laws that kind of govern the way healthcare is delivered now, or are these piece by piece reforms? In other words, do we need more big, bold thinking here or just tweaks to the system? I think we should do tweaks to the system and we should start with small things to, to build up something that is uh, valuable for for our patients and also for our medical staff because, uh, you know, without the medical staff, the patients, they, they don't have the, the need address and uh, it's important to address both sides. Not to wade too deeply into the political aspect of this, but as you are well aware, uh, this becomes a big political football uh, managing all of these laws at the federal level and then state by state. Since the last repeal and replace effort during the Trump administration failed, there has really been no appetite on either side to revisit this. Is is all of this falling on deaf ears or will this inevitably come up again, especially in the aftermath of the pandemic, as we look at to how to better prepare for something like this that may happen again in the future? I think it will come back again. I don't think it's going to go away. The situation is kind of boiling, especially in, in, you know, in the, and I can tell you in the physician community, a lot of physicians are unhappy with what they leave today. And, um, they are trying, some of them or some of us, we are trying to change the, the, um, not only the system, but try to, to offer alternatives to our patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that if we are let to do that, um, and offer alternatives to patients, uh, everybody will be happy because we understand, we understand the system and we understand, uh, the needs of the, the system. And, uh, although it's difficult, um, I think there are people that are willing to work towards, um, offering better healthcare services and access to patients. And we just have to be, um, you know, free to do so. Yeah. Right. Free to innovate. And, and I think it's interesting you, you mentioned that it doesn't involve blowing up the entire system and starting over, but more making incremental change uh, that in many cases make a lot of sense. Uh, like we said, a lot of the what you're talking about here in this piece um, are, are common sense, uh, should be fairly easy to implement. Others may take a while, but again, certainly are based on, on common sense and putting the patient first. Really fascinating piece that we will link up on our webpage. Uh, a lot uh, for uh, folks to think about again as we emerge from the pandemic. Dr. Diana Granita with us this morning. Dr. Granita, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate your insight on the topic. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
And that will put a wrap on our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Americans are ready to travel again. And it's understandable. After spending two years locked down, we're ready to go anywhere. So is this the year to cross that dream Caribbean vacation off your bucket list? So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.